Well, let's open again to the book of Titus, chapter 1, and read beginning at uh, verse 5, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Father in heaven, we love you and thank you for the morning. We got up this morning, we met with new mercies. This is true every day. Thank you for every man who's in this room. I thank you for who they are individually, the, the life that's represented just in them, but I also thank you for the, what's represented in terms of families and what's represented in terms of this church. And our prayer and our desire is that, God, you would make much of yourself, much of your, your truth in and through our lives. And so I pray that we would be men, as we've just sung about, whose chief ambition in life is your glory, that we would understand this is what we were made for, this is what we exist for, that our chief end in life is to glorify you and to enjoy you for forever. We ask that you would bless your word now as we study it and think about it and be at work in me and through me, Lord. I confess joyfully that uh, without Christ, I can do nothing. And as listeners, we are powerless apart from your working in our hearts. And so we ask you to take your sword in hand that the Spirit of God would, would deal with our lives as we sit before your word. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking about the inner workings of biblical manhood. And I think we're in a, a wonderful passage to do that. When you talk about our home life, uh, we're, we're more into the private realm. When you talk about our marriage, we talk about the raising of our children. We're in, we're in the private realm there. It's the, that, that's where the inner workings get revealed first, how we live at home. But now we turn our attention to another area of stewardship. We're talking about stewardship. That's really what's under examination when you talk about the pastoral qualifications. That's being examined as stewardship. As we saw in verse 7, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. And so we have a stewardship at home. We must manage our households well. But now what we see in the, in the next verses is the man must manage himself well. That in fact, his management of the home is just a reflection of the management of himself. 
And you have two, two realms clearly delineated. There's the management of oneself that involves what we say no to, what we're not characterized by, and there's the management of oneself that has to do with pursuit, what we are characterized by in positive terms. So for this hour, we're going to focus on what the man of God must not be, and then next hour, we'll focus on what the man of God must be. And I want to remind us as well that when we talk about elders, we're talking about all of us, not in the sense that we all serve as elders, but in the sense that Every man, every Christian man ought to live a life that would be elder qualified. Even if that's not God's will for your life, that you're going to serve as an elder in the church, every one of you men should live a life that's above reproach. The elders are to model what the entire church is to be characterized by. I I noted it last night. I would encourage you when you have more time, just walk through that second chapter and notice the character qualities that are mentioned for godly men and godly women and godly Uh, young women and godly young men. Look at those qualities and then compare them back here to the pastoral qualifications. You're going to see that we're all called to live the same life. We don't have two-tier Christianity in the church. So as a result, when when, when I talk about these things this morning, I'm going to talk about the man of God, not the elder, not, not what an elder must be, but what a man of God must be. And elders must be men of God. That's the issue. So five things a man of God must not be. Here's the first one. A man of God must not be arrogant. A man of God must not be arrogant. Verse 7 says, not self-willed. Me althade. Not self-willed. Not headstrong. Not stubborn because of pride. That's the idea. Someone who is stubborn, headstrong, self-willed, self-interested, self-promoting, selfish, because he's proud. And when you think about what elders do, they serve as under-shepherds to the Lord's church. Jesus is the chief shepherd. It's his church, his people. We serve as under-shepherds. Nothing is more contrary to the chief shepherd than pride. Our salvation is explained by the self-sacrificing, humbling work that Jesus embraced. If not for the humility of the Son of God, we are lost forever. And so there's nothing more contrary to his character. I mean, what is the goal of the Christian life? Where are we all headed? Christ-likeness being conformed to the image of Christ, and there's nothing more contrary to his character than that we would be proud men. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. You know this passage well. It says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition. That's the standard for the Christian life. We're not given permission to do one thing that's motivated by selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Do you do that? Do you count others to be more important than you? Is that what's showing up in your marriage? That you understand your wife is more important than you are? That your children, in your eyes, what is best for them is more important than what's best for you? 
Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Where you have pride, you have selfishness. Where you have selfishness, you find someone who wants their way, always pushing to get their way. Thus, they are self-willed. A self-willed person, we must not be self-willed. A self-willed person is a proud person. Think about what goes along with humility. People who are humble in their hearts can be submissive. They can submit to authority. They can follow someone else's direction. They can be taught. They can be guided. They can be corrected. People who are humble in heart can sincerely say, Lord, not my will be done. Your will be done. People who are humble in heart can absorb mistreatment. They can absorb injury. When you talk about ministry, if you talk about serving the Lord's church, there are going to be times that that you're mistreated. Can you absorb that? I mean, is that going to somehow get in the way of your service? Can you be misunderstood? Can you even be misrepresented? And yet you go on serving faithfully. This is what's necessary in elders. It's what's necessary in Christian men. I think the greatest example of this outside of our Savior is the Apostle Paul. I read 1 and 2 Corinthians. If you don't read 1 and 2 Corinthians and feel a sense of sadness, you're not reading it right. I mean, here is a man loving a people who have been influenced by false teachers in a way that they don't really trust him. He's accused of all sorts of things in terms of his motives and his practices. You know, here's a man who can't be trusted to finish what he says he's going to do, and here's a man who does what he does to really take advantage of us. He's sneaky that way. I know it seems like he's selfless, but he's really wanted to take advantage of us, and all sorts of things. As you read First and Second Corinthians, you know, flowing through those letters, Paul reporting to us what he's been dealing with in the life of this church. Yet he asked the question, if I love you the more, am I to be loved the less? He he, he announces the fact that he's willing to spin and be spent on behalf of their souls. This is a man who's going to empty himself out on behalf of people who don't understand him and have misrepresented him, but he keeps on loving them. Well, that's what's necessary to live the Christian life well. But that takes humility, doesn't it? If it's all about you, if you're at the center of the picture, if people have to serve you, then what are you going to do when they mistreat you? What are they going to do? What are you going to do when they misunderstand you or misrepresent you? You're going to quit. You're going to say, that's it. Why would I pour myself out for people like that? But Paul counted himself to be a slave of Christ. And he didn't exist for himself. He existed for Christ. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. This was his mindset. He was a humble man. People who are humble in heart can recognize their place, their role, their service in in a larger organization, in a team. They don't have to have first place. They can fit into a slot and serve the Lord well in that slot and actually be supportive of the people who serve above them 
and actually serve to further the interests of those who serve above them. This is humility. Romans 12.3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. This is one of the marks of maturity in the Christian life and humility. You can actually objectively understand yourself. You can, you can look at yourself with sober judgment and realize what you were made for and how you fit in. You don't overestimate your abilities. I think that's, imp- that's such a, a sweet thing to my heart because sometimes we, th- we, we want to pretend we're humble instead of actually being humble. And so one of the counterfeits for true humility is someone who just poor mouths himself and he always runs himself down and, oh, I'm nothing, you know, that sort of thing. No, someone with true humility can, can recognize where God has actually gifted him or what he's made him for in terms of some strengths, but he doesn't overestimate those strengths. He, he, he's able to figure out, this is how I'm to serve. And whatever strengths I have, they didn't come from me, so I can't glory in them or boast in them, but I'm to take whatever God has put in me and now use it for his glory and use it with an open hand. So if for a season God plugs me in here and he uses me this way and decides in the next season not to use me at all, That's up to him. That's humility. And the fact that an elder should be, must be, self-willed, or must not be self-willed, that fits with the work, doesn't it? Because the church is God's, not mine. The message is God's, not mine. The glory is God's, not mine. So I can't serve the church well if I'm at the center of the picture. I can't preach the Bible well if I'm at the center of the picture. And I can't deal with the outcome of it all well if I'm at the center of the picture. Must not be self-willed, arrogant, proud, therefore stubborn, having to have his own way. It's one of the great struggles for young men in ministry. So one of the things, one of the reasons you ought to love the fact that you're a part of the TES network, because in the, in the training that the Expositor Seminary does, we're not just focusing on academics, we're focusing on character. And one of the struggles in, in, in a young man's life is pride, oftentimes. 1 Timothy 3.6, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I like what MacArthur says about this word. Self-will translates authate, an unusually strong adjective that denotes an arrogant self-interest that asserts its own will with utter disregard for how others might be affected. Proud self-interest is, in one way or another, the root of all sin because it not only disregards the interests and welfare of other people, but even more important, disregards God's will. And replaces his purpose in glory with man's. This is what characterizes false teachers. They are self-willed. 2 Peter 2 verse 9 says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion, listen, and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble 
as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about the about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wages for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. These are false teachers. And right there in the center of it all, bold and willful, despising authority. It's not about God's will. They they operate like animals by instinct. It's about what pleases them, what fulfills them. They're, They're driven by greed, proud, arrogant men. So before we move on, let me just ask you, brothers, are you cultivating humility? Are you striving for it? Are you asking God for it? You want to be characterized by it. Are you saying no to yourself? Do you fight for your own way? Are you learning to submit to authority? Will you let someone else tell you what you're good at and not good at? Or do you have to determine that? Can you work for someone else's success if you're behind the scenes and nobody knows your name? Not self-willed. Second, a man of God must not be quick-tempered. Quick-tempered. The Greek word means inclined to anger. So the idea is not that, that an elder must be someone who has never gotten angry or someone who is never guilty of sinful anger. Can we, can we just admit we're all at times guilty of sinful anger? So that's not the standard. It's not even, even though this is very bad, this is not really referring to like a sudden outburst of anger. That's not really what's in view here. No, this is someone who gets angry as a pattern. I think we can describe it this way when you think about quick temper. They get angry as a pattern so that they are swift to go to anger. And it becomes what characterizes their life. They're an angry person. An elder must not be someone who is quick-tempered, quick to anger, an angry person. I love the entry in the standard Greek lexicon. It's often referred to as BDAG. It has this, quote, quick-tempered persons lose no time being angry and do so with those, I love this, with those they ought not, over things they ought not, And far more than they ought. I get angry with the people I shouldn't be angry with. Over things I ought not to be angry about. And I do it far more than I should. That's a quick-tempered person. Now this quality is closely associated with the first one, isn't it? Who gets angry as a pattern? Proud people. Pride contributes to anger, doesn't it? People who feel like they deserve better get angry. People who feel like they ought to be listened to get angry. 
People who are willing to fight to get their way get angry. People who don't like being told they can't have their way get angry. So these two things are closely associated. The Bible has a lot to say about angry people. The Bible warns about angry people. Proverbs 21 verse 19 says, It's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. The word fretful there translates a Hebrew word that refers to provocation, irritation, angry. Angry woman is being described there. Proverbs 22 verse 24 says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. You do know that angry people can influence other people to be angry. Don't learn his ways. When we think about our home life, gentlemen, I, I wonder if you have sons. Are you, are you teaching them to be angry people? Do they see that in you? We influence others with our tendency toward anger. Proverbs 29 verse 22 says, An angry man stirs up strife. And a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Proverbs 15 verse 18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger, there's the opposite, the slow to anger pacifies contention. Here's a good test of whether we're angry people or not. When there is a conflict, when there is some sort of conflict going on, never any conflict in the church, right? So that when there is some kind of conflict going on, if you're tossed into that situation, are you a force for pacification? Are you a force for peace? Or are you like gasoline? You know, it gets worse when you get introduced into it. It's one of the things you can recognize about angry people. They make things worse. They, they don't work for peace. They don't work for unity they actually become a force for disruption and disunity and anger. So am I talking to anybody this morning who deals with anger? I wonder if I'm talking to anybody this morning who is characterized by anger. I mean, if we asked your wife or your children, this man, is is he an angry man? As a pattern. Is he quick to go there? What would they say? So like every other sin we battle with, this is something the Lord wants to grow us out of, something that needs to be overcome in our lives. How do we do that? How do we grow? How do we overcome anger? Let me give you some keys, not in any particular order, but um, some things that will help, I think, as we think about overcoming anger. If you struggle with anger, here are some ways to overcome. Number one, you've got to confess your anger is sin. One of the things we do with all kinds of sins but we do this with anger, is we relabel it, we excuse it, we justify it. I'm not an angry person, I'm just red-headed, <laughs> right? I'm not an angry person, I'm just Irish. I'm not an angry person, you know, I'm just passionate. I feel things strongly. In a thousand different ways we can try to relabel something, call it something other than what it is. 
So if I'm recognizing that I'm, I'm getting angry as a pattern, I just need to own up to the fact this is something I'm struggling with. And it is sinful. It's wrong. It doesn't please the Lord. He's telling me right here in our verses, I must not be quick-tempered. This doesn't please him. If I were to be considered as an elder, if this is what characterizes me, I would be disqualified. That's how serious it is. So confess your anger is sin. Second, worship the true God. In other words, get off your throne. We get angry because we we act as if others exist to please us. Instead of remembering that others exist and I exist to please God. I'm not God. So other people don't exist to please me. A lot of our anger issues are over that. I'm not pleased. I'm not pleased with this. So get off the throne. Third, leave your defense in God's hands. How does Paul absorb so much injury from the Corinthian church? One one way, even when he has to defend himself in 2 Corinthians, and sometimes there is a place for defending oneself, but you've got to be sure it's for the glory of God. Even when Paul has to defend himself, he trusts that his defense is really in the hands of God. So a lot of anger sometimes is in the interest of self-defense. What you're saying about me is not true. You've mischaracterized my motives here. You've misunderstood me. You're misrepresenting me. We get angry because we feel like someone's attacking us. One of the ways to remain patient and peaceful is to remember that your reputation is not ultimately in anybody's hands but God's. I love what MacArthur said years ago. He says it every so often. Time and truth walk together. Time and truth walk together. Just keep doing what's right, and eventually right is shown to be right. And even if it's not demonstrated in your lifetime, it'll be demonstrated one day at the judgment seat. You can rest in that. It's also helpful to remember that none of us is really worth defending that much anyway. And usually when someone has something wrong about us, there's something else they could have right about us, they just don't know about it. Oh, they got that so wrong. They so misrepresent me. Well, what if they knew everything about you? How would that go? So just because they get one thing wrong, you can, you can absorb that humbly because there's some other area they don't know about. None, none, none of this we just ignore. We're pursuing holiness. But we can leave our defense in God's hands. Fourth, recognize what you can't control. Much of our anger is due to frustration. And we usually get frustrated about things we're not in control of. So how much do we really control anyway? Got to remember, I can only, the only thing I have any control over in, in any situation really is how I'm going to respond. An illustration I use sometimes in counseling is, it's like, it's like playing tennis. You can't play both sides of the net. Right? You, hit the, you don't hit the ball, run, jump the net, and hit it back to yourself. You hit the ball when it's on your side of the net. So when you talk about any area of conflict, it's not, it's not in my job description to, to control how you're going to respond to what I'm saying. I can't control that. But what I can control is how I'm going to respond to this situation and to you. So let me focus there. Let me honor God right there. And then leave your response in God's hands. So realize what you can't control. Don't live in frustration. 
Fifth, if you want to overcome anger issues, you're going to have to learn to forgive. Much of our anger is due to feeling like we've been hurt and we don't let go of it. We don't, we don't forgive. We don't really forgive. We say we forgive, but then there's this lingering bitterness. We don't forgive in the sense that we, we actually clear the account. I wish I had more time to talk about forgiveness. It's really a complex subject, more complex than people realize. Um, I have to understand the difference between saying, I clear you of everything you've done against me, and saying, I clear you of all your responsibility before God. I can't do that. I can't clear your record with God. That, that's about you and the Lord. But what I can do is release that in my own heart and leave it to God. And I can do that before you even ask me to do it. I can do that if you never ask me to do it. And not only, not only can I do it in Christ, I'm commanded to do it. I'm commanded to do it if someone comes to me seven times in the same day and repents. Think about that, seven times in the same day. Do you think after number five you might be doubting their sincerity? How often, Lord, shall I forgive my brother? Seven times? What did the Lord Jesus say? Seventy times seven. So I'm commanded to be a forgiving person. And much of our anger relates to things we don't forgive. We hold on to it. When you see, dis- you see disunity in churches, what you're really dealing with oftentimes is just unforgiveness. There have been hurts, some of them real, some of them not real, some of them just perceived. But people don't let go of them. They nurse it, in fact. They, they sort of nurse it, you know. They cherish it, they hold it close, they kind of feed it. And so everything that you think adds to the narrative, you just add it right on top of it. Well, there's another example of it. There it is again. And before you know it, you're just, you're just angry. So if you're going to overcome anger, you're going to have to forgive. Sixth, if you want to overcome anger, pray for the people making you angry. Who is it that's been making you angry? Are you praying for them? And are you praying for ways you can serve them? This is helpful, not just praying for them, but asking God, how can I serve them? And what may... what? What may be standing behind their behaviors that are frustrating me that I'm not seeing or that I'm not considering or that I don't take seriously? Something as simple sometimes is just, are they saved or lost? We don't expect lost people to act like saved people. We're not moralists if we're Christians. We understand the gospel of grace, don't we? But isn't it interesting how we can be moralists out there in our everyday life. Why are they acting like this? Well, they don't know Jesus. They need Christ. Are you surprised? So pray for them. Ask how you can serve them. Last thought, overcoming anger. Look look up regarding your challenges. Look up. There's someone who is sovereign over your life. He's controlling the details of your life. In other words, this isn't happening to you by accident. Even the bad stuff, even the frustrating stuff, stuff that tends to make you angry. Do you, do you stop and realize, Lord, this has not come my way today without your permission. So what do you want me to learn? 
Our Father is a good Father. He's the perfect Father. And when He took you to Himself, when He saved you, His his work is all going to contribute to your holiness. He disciplines every son whom He receives. He scourges His sons. And His work as a Father is not always pleasant in the present, but it's going to be pleasant in the end when you're conformed to the image of Christ. So even the things that that we think this ought not to be, this ought not to be happening, this is wrong, this is frustrating, this is hurtful. But is it accidental? Or is your life really in a sovereign hand? And if your life is in a sovereign hand, then isn't there a purpose for this? It's not to say God delights in the thing itself, but God's at work in that thing. To make you who He wants you to be. Are you willing to learn? You think if you were Joseph, you might have tended to be bitter? Your brothers sell you into slavery, you end up in prison. Falsely accused of sexual assault, you end up in prison. And you're forgotten there. You think you might have had a tendency to be bitter about that? And yet there are his brothers now standing before him... And he, Joseph, has the opportunity to get revenge. But he weeps. He weeps as he meets his brothers. There is not even a hint of bitterness in the man's life. How do you do that? Well, he asks the question, am I in the place of God? Are we just here by accident, brothers? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. See, it's this this perspective of sovereignty that saves him from anger and bitterness. The same is true with us. A man of God must not be selfishly proud, right? Not self-willed, must not be, or proudly selfish, I guess we should say. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered. Third. Man of God must not be a drunkard. Must not be a drunkard. Not addicted to wine. Interesting word. It's a compound word. Parinas is the word. It's formed by the word para, meaning at or beside, and oinos, wine. Alongside wine or in the presence of wine. The idea would be wine is this person's companion. Find themselves in the presence of wine a lot. A man of God is to be a man who is exemplary in any area of self-control. That includes wine, and he's not to be drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What do we do with a drinking issue? In our day. Have you noticed, especially in reformed circles, there's been an uptick in the consumption of alcohol? Some people actually have get togethers where they drink beer and talk theology. Can we say, can we say that the Bible says that drinking wine is sin? What's the answer? No, can't say that. Can't say that. But does that that mean then that we should all go out and drink wine? It's a wisdom issue, isn't it? 
All things are, I guess you could say, legal, but not all things are profitable, lawful. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Obviously not referring to things that are clearly unlawful, as dictated by Scripture, but the things that are not identified as sin in Scripture, those things are areas of liberty, but, but that doesn't mean that all things are profitable. So I did an extended series on wine for our church and on drinking. And I, and I, I made the case that though I, I will not say and cannot say that drinking wine is sin, I don't think it's the wisest course of action. If I had my way, I just say unapologetically, if I had my way, not one person in our church would drink alcohol just as a, a beverage. Why? I don't know that it's the wisest choice. Now, if you do, if you do, then be sure that you are exemplary as a man of self-control. But God has given us so many things that are pleasurable to us. If the argument is wine is pleasurable, okay. He's given us so many things that are pleasurable for us to consume that don't involve the same risk, both in terms of self-control and in terms of testimony as wine. I'm also in the camp, I know that some people scoff at this, but I'm in the camp that if you, if you, if you talk about first century wine, you talk about what people are drinking today, we're not talking one-to-one comparisons. So you can't just justify your drinking by saying, well, they drank wine in the Bible. All right, make it like they make it and drink it. And now you've got a one-to-one comparison. But if not, you've got to ask, are these things actually the same? But no matter what you're taking into your body, that's not what really defiles a man. It's what comes out of him. So the, the, the question is, are you, are you living a self-controlled life in, in, the, in terms of substances, in terms of, of something pleasurable like wine? So I, I'm deeply concerned. Put me in the category of I'm deeply concerned about the frivolous way that many people in our day are approaching this subject. I've never had anyone come to me and say, my life is out of order because I'm not drinking. Have you ever had that? My life is so out of order because I stopped drinking. But I have had people sit in my office weeping because their lives are destroyed and alcohol contributed to it. I've sat with men weeping who were unfaithful to their wife who said to me, I don't think that would have ever happened had I not been drinking. Is it the wisest choice you can make? And by the way, I also think we uh, underestimate what drunkenness is. Drunkenness happens when you come under the control of a substance. So when someone says, well, I drink because it makes me happier, or I drink because it makes me relaxed, or I drink because, I mean, name it, what, what you're really admitting to is you drink it because of the influence it has over you. Well, the moment you're under the control of, another, of something else, you're drunk. Maybe a mild drunkenness, but you're drunk. And we're not to be men who are drunk with wine but filled with the Spirit. So I halfway jokingly said to our church, you know, and this is, this, this is the absolute truth, the only wine I've ever, the only alcohol I've ever consumed in my life was in communion services, okay, in Bulgaria. They used real wine, they passed the cup, and, and I had it there. It doesn't even taste that good, in my opinion. But the point I was making with the church is, you know what, I'm happy, I really do have joy. I don't have to have that to have joy in my life. So I commend that to you. You don't have to have wine to be joyful. 
You don't have to have wine to have a good time. You don't have to have wine to be relaxed. You don't have to have wine to find peace. You can find all those things in your relationship with Christ. But if you partake, you're not to be someone who's associated with it. You're not to be someone who, who is so identified with it that we could say, that's your companion. Next, next thing a man of God must not be, he must not be violent, not pugnacious. Literally, the word refers to a striker, someone who strikes with the fists. You're not to be a fighting kind of person, someone who settles your disputes with violence. Now, we may not know many men in the church who actually, you know, duke it out. But we need to to look a little deeper, don't we? We could ask it this way. Are you someone who's characterized by intimidation? Are you the kind of person that someone says, you know, you don't mess with him. He'll put you in your place quickly. Are people intimidated by you? Because not, Now, sometimes people can be intimidated by others, and it's not the person's fault. I mean, they're not intimidating on purpose, or they're not doing anything you could say, that's why they're intimidating. It's just their personality. Maybe they're quiet, maybe very serious-minded. Someone feels a little intimidated by that. That's not their fault. But if you're someone who's intimidating on purpose, I mean, you kind of use that to your advantage. This is how you get things done, through intimidation. That's not what's to characterize godly men. We're not to be men who are characterized by aggressiveness, intimidation, verbally abusive, if not physically abusive. Elders should not be characterized by cruelty, abusiveness, vengefulness. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Are you known for intimidation or are you known for being a peacemaker? This is something, all these areas, right? No one is perfected in these things. I want to say that when we think about you know, how, how these qualities are taking place in our lives, we need to think about sanctification and how it happens. We are living our lives out of the gospel, aren't we? If not for grace, if not for Christ, if not for imputed righteousness, we're all undone. So I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by Christ's finished work. And now I'm living my life out of the truth that I'm forgiven. I'm living my life out of the truth that I'm accepted, always accepted, perfectly accepted in the beloved. But, but the Bible doesn't just have indicatives. It has imperatives. And so I don't live the Christian life by simply remembering who I am in Jesus. I also live the Christian life knowing who I am in Jesus by listening to the commands of God and obeying them. And so I'm to be growing in these areas by obeying the Scriptures, by listening to Christ. So if you're a man who maybe you were raised in a home where your father dealt oftentimes with you out of a sense of intimidation, and maybe you picked that up, and now when you deal with your children or you deal with your wife or you deal with someone at work, maybe even you deal with people like this at church, you've you've got to grow out of that. You've got to allow the Lord to change that. 
And that's what was happening among our Lord's disciples. Did, did, did Jesus have any disciples who were sort of given to physical action? Can you think of any of them? How about when they come to arrest Jesus in the garden? What does Peter do? Hacks off a guy's ear. I would say that <laughs> that's physical action. He hacks off a guy's ear, Malchus. And what does Jesus do in that very moment? He heals him. It's amazing, isn't it? Do you, do you think that stuck with Peter for the rest of his life? How about the sons of thunder? Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven right now? They were given to that kind of thing, weren't they? These are fishermen, burly fishermen. These are men's men from that standpoint. They're, they're toxic in their masculinity, all right? I mean, they are men. And yet Jesus had to teach them to be shepherds. Shepherds. Luke twenty two forty seven. while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear, but Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. It's a great reminder of even in situations where there's high conflict, we're not to be men who are fighters. That's not the demeanor of a man of God. All right, one last quality. We're not to be self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious. Last one, not fond of sordid gain. A man of God must not be greedy for gain. And in the ministry realm, we don't really have a hard time understanding this because we live in a, in a very lucrative, rich culture. We, we live in a, we're very rich people, all of us, everybody in this room. I mean, by the standards of, of the history of the world and how people have lived their lives, we know an unparalleled kind of prosperity in, in, in this culture and in our day. But there's a difference between having something and something having you. And as I said, we don't have a hard time understanding this in the, in the ministry realm because in this rich culture, it's full of prosperity teaching. False teachers who make godliness a means of gain. And he's saying here that a man of God doesn't think like that. You're not engaged in ministry for money. You're not engaged in ministry for money. You, you're not a hireling. I thank God. We, I serve a church. They take good care of me and my family. But if it ever got to the point that that's why I do ministry, my motive would be wrong. I'm thankful they allow me. They free me up to do ministry full time and they take care of my family. But I'm to serve Christ, not money. And I'm to serve the people, for, not, not for what they give me, but for who they are in the context of, of their relationship to Jesus and my relationship to them and their relationship to me as brethren. This is why we serve. The idea in this word is interesting. This, this word is a very interesting word when he says um, not to be fond of sordid gain. Fond of sordid gain. In the word is the idea of someone who takes from people what he already has in abundance. So you already have it. 
It's not like you're in need, and yet you keep taking it from people. So greediness is there. George Knight commenting on this says, It means greedy for money, where it's used of those who take from others even though they have an abundance of what they take. So a man who would pursue money in a way that's dishonest, a man who would pursue money in a way that dishonors God, even in terms of just his motives. But here's the deeper issue. Why are people greedy? Now, it's easy for us to think about pastors and say, yeah, they're not to be greedy. What about you? You're not a pastor, let's say. Are you to be greedy? I mean, even when you go to work, aren't you taught in Scripture you, you, you go to work for the Lord? You're not a, a, a man pleaser. You don't do what you do in the way of eye service. You serve Christ at work, don't you? You should. So is what motivates you just making more money, getting the promotion, getting a larger salary? I mean, is this what motivates your life? Why do people become greedy? Answer, they don't understand true riches. When you're someone who pursues the riches of this world, that becomes your motive for living your life or your motive for work or your motive for service in the church. It's because you've lost sight of what the true riches are. That's what I meant last night when I said that I tell my kids, I don't care what you are in life. I want you to hear me properly, what I actually mean by that. Because what I don't mean is that I want my children to learn to be lazy or to not maximize their abilities. Remember what I said, I want you to love Christ. Well, if you love Christ, you're going to want to make the most of everything He's put in your life. Do everything you do with excellence. So I want my children to learn that. But if it turns out that their abilities or doing their best doesn't lead to success in the eyes of this world, but they love Jesus, that's all I care about. That's what I want. And in addition, if they have the choice between achieving success by worldly standards, but it means they can't serve Christ as they ought, then you choose service to Christ. If it means you have to take the lower salary, if it means you don't get the promotion, but you're free to serve in the church every Sunday. I mean, you've got the choice, son, between a job that takes you traveling all over the country and you can never know your brothers in the church and never serve, or you can take... Less money, but be at home with Sydney and be at home with Nixon and serve well in the church. You make that choice because you need to be a man who understands what real riches are. Luke 16, 11 says, If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? He draws a distinction, doesn't he, between the kind of wealth that belongs to this world and what's real Really valuable. First Timothy 6.3 says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining... That godliness is a means of gain. This is what characterizes false teachers. They, they see people, the people of God, and they see merchandise. And here's a way to enrich myself. He goes on to say, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. 
And we cannot take anything out of the world. You convinced of that? You can't take anything with you? So, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. See, we're missionaries. And we work our jobs to provide. This is how God provides for us. It's God providing. We work our jobs as a means by which God provides for our families as we serve Him as strangers, aliens, pilgrims on our way home. This isn't home. This is very, a very brief time. I understand that more every day. Believe it or not, young guys, I, I'm not that far away from you in my mind. <laughs> but now I'm 55. Where did the time go? Right? Sometimes my mind says, let's go play some basketball. We got out on the court. I'd be, you'd be picking me up off the floor. I'd be sucking wind. And it didn't, it didn't take long for that to happen. And before you know it, we're going to be standing before our Savior. And what difference has our life made for His glory, for the sake of the gospel in this very brief time? Those are the true riches. As I said, this doesn't mean that a godly person can't have money. What it means is that money doesn't have them. So what must a man of God not not be? Not proud, which will show up in being self-willed. Not angry. Not a drunkard. Not a fighter. Not greedy. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be what you want us to be. We don't want to be what displeases you. So for every man in this room who truly knows you, I know they care about these things. I know they don't want to be characterized by that which grieves your spirit. So would you work in our lives, Lord? thanking you that we belong to you, thanking you that we stand in grace, thanking you that in Christ and by the Spirit we have what we need to be able to obey your commands. Would you work in our lives so that we would not be characterized by these things that dishonor you? We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.